Real estate is a very capital intensive business. And if yes. you don't feel comfortable pitching and being told no, it's not the business for you. Welcome to the Wealth Matters Podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. I have with me Brian Adams. He's a recovering attorney hailing from a family office background dedicated to providing investors with direct access to institutional alternative investments that can generate passive income in a tax efficient manner. He currently serves as principal of Excelsior Group, which he founded in 2019 and oversees acquisitions, operations and capital raising efforts. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the episode because I have never invested in uh, commercial office space. And uh, as most of you guys know me, my listeners, that I love diversifying. I have been investing in uh, single family to multifamily, uh, recently senior housing to mobile home parks. So I'm always looking forward to learning uh, about new uh, real estate assets. So welcome, Brian. Thank you for having me, Altesh. I really appreciate it. And feel free to add if I forgot anything from your bio. <laughs> no, I think you covered everything. I'm a, uh, I, you know, have two little boys, and I'm a huge hockey fan. But other than that, oh, huge hockey fan, nice. Real, real estate is. Uh, I think you covered all the basics. Perfect. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you to tell us something interesting about yourself, and I think you mentioned hockey. Mm -hmm. If there is something else, let us know. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I pretty much. I've got three jobs. I've got real estate and then working with my wife's family office, doing a bunch of different things. And oh, okay. Being a dad. Uh, That's my, a full-time job. Boys. Yeah. So I've got three jobs. And so. Yeah. 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 I tell my wife, I got two daughters as well, young. So I know. <laughs> it's work, but they're great. So. Absolutely. So how and when did you start in real estate? Yeah. So I'm from New York originally. Um, I met my wife in college in Connecticut. We went to a small liberal arts school together and she is from Nashville. So she's a Nashville native. Oh, okay. And, um, her, uh, family has a single family office based here in middle Tennessee. And they've been involved in the real estate business for a long time. So when I, I practiced law for a couple of years and then got exposure to, some of the investments we were making, some of the sponsors we were working with, the GPs, et cetera. And just right. fell, I fell in love with the business. I thought real estate was a terrific oh, okay. business, a great investment, multi-generational wealth creation. And uh, so I, I connected with my partner, who's another New York guy that married a Nashville girl. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we started, yeah, we started our company about 10 years ago. Um, oh, okay. Initially in Nashville, and then we started expanding geographically. And today, we have about um, two and a half million square feet under management. So the portfolio value is probably 350 million or thereabouts. And we're in 12 markets. That's awesome. So you are someone who has seen from family office perspective, who has seen, you know, 
that real estate can build generational wealth, right? Because of course you and I are young and we haven't done that. So we can't prove it ourselves, but you have seen it from family office perspective. And where, where does that family office invest or what asset type? Do they invest in all different asset types or they are focused on certain? Yeah, there, there's, a, uh, there's a saying in the family office world that once you meet one family office, you've met one family office. So every family is different uh-huh. um, in terms of how they want to allocate. But I would say, based on anecdotal evidence, just from my experience with my investor base and then reading some research, uh, it, it's, it's pretty typical, as you would think. They have you know, a decent exposure to real estate. They, a lot of it's multifamily. A lot of it's triple net retail. A lot of it is office. Um, a lot of private equity exposure, um, uh-huh. and then just the overall market. So it's hard to pin down, right? Exactly because every family is so different, and it's, it's a little bit. Yeah. But it's what you'd expect. I mean, they have, you know, historically these families created wealth by, you know, massive concentration in one asset class. And so typically when they want to maintain that wealth over multiple generations, which frankly is pretty difficult when you talk about inflation, right. operating costs or overhead or spend rate. And then, you know, your family grows exponentially, right? You have two kids. I have two uh-huh. kids. Yep. They each have two children and they, you know how that goes. And families realize that the only way that they can kind of beat the market is by taking on illiquidity private investments right um, Right. usually they have a pretty broad exposure to the alternative space that that's that's uh, that's great so why did you choose commercial office buildings you know because means i invest in multifamily to more on the residential side and that's senior housing i still consider that as residential how and why did you choose a commercial office building yeah, when we got into the business, um, this was even 10 years ago, multifamily was just hyper-competitive. So yes. a lot of people looking for deals, cap rates were going the wrong direction. Right. And you know, increasingly, what used to be an A product was a B product, et cetera. And, and so right. it, just, it seemed like a pretty crowded trade. And when we went to our investor base, for the most part, they had exposure to multifamily, but office... Right. For whatever reason, office was a situation or it was an asset class that they either could get it through like a Blackstone fund of funds or a KKR Carlisle kind mm-hmm. of big Wall Street product, or they could do a one-off deal with their buddy from the golf course. But there was really right. between, so we wanted to bring that institutional deal flow, institutional style asset management to the accredited investor family office space. That, that's interesting. And I, and I agree. So if you are talking about 10 years ago, if the multifamily market was competitive, it's, it's like ultra competitive right now. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. And, you know, I, I understand it because it's an approachable asset class. Right. For the most part, it's kind of like education. Everyone um, at some point in their lives have, has lived in an apartment building. And so you think, well, yes. I can understand this. Exactly. Can do it. But, um, you know, for us, the way we think about real estate is, we like to be north of an 8% cash on cash yield. Yeah. Um, and, you know, unless you're going to take a lot of leverage or risk, it's hard to do that in multifamily today. Right. So, you know, office, we've carved out a nice little niche and we can still find seven to eight cap uh, type opportunities. in these Nice. Markets. Okay. 
Yeah, because multifamily now it's four to five, and yeah, and that also then you know you got to do value add, and it's very competitive. I decided to get out of it last year, so I now focus more on mobile home parks and senior housing, because I think that's where the market is. You know, well, even managed. in office, cap rates have gone down. I mean, yes, it's, it's everywhere. Of course, cap rates have compressed. Yes, but you know, everyone wants to be a multifamily investor. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and it's a great asset class. My family right. still has investments in multifamily, and it's terrific. But it's just a crowded trade, yes. and um, I don't like competing against, you know, people who are really, really smart that have a have that are well capitalized. And so I'd rather go elsewhere. <laughs> We've carved out a place in that ten to twenty million dollar price range where the buyer pool is just, is just not very deep. It's below where private equity will go, but above the syndicators. Right. And so, you know, we have still have a little bit of a pricing premium there. No, that's a great point. So how different, or I don't know if you have invested in uh, apartment buildings and all personally, but how different is investing in office building from, you know, residential apartment buildings to mobile home parks to even single families? What yeah. have you seen? Yeah, so fundamentally, you know, for the most part, it's all pretty similar um, in terms of the structure and the capital stack and, and all those things are going to be uh, very similar. I would say the biggest difference and that people, it's good and bad. Um, for the most part, we're talking about five, seven, or even 10 year long leases, right? right. So you're, you have a lot of stability. It, sometimes it's not as attractive as multifamily because with that stability, you don't have the opportunity to raise those rates yes. in a very yeah. dynamic pricing structure where Correct. obviously hotels, you can change your rates every day. Every, yeah. Multi, you can <laughs> change it every six months or 12 months. Office, it's, it's, a, it's more stable and less volatile, but you're losing some of that pricing dynamics. So right. if the market is doing well and you think, gosh, I can push rents two or three bucks a square foot, you've got to wait. Yeah. Um, and I think the biggest misconception for offices and where people have been burned, tenant improvement and leasing commissions are big expenditures, right? So uh, yes, you've really got to underwrite appropriately so that you can maintain your yield. And so what we do is um, every year we do a cash sweep. So we take excess amount of dollars, we do it mm -hmm. on a per square foot basis, and we put it into an account and we, that account accrues every year so that when you do have a tenant that wants to renew or you have a tenant rolling and you've got to backfill them, we don't have to go to the lender for more money. We have our ah, own makes sense. We don't have to do a capital call to the investors and we can still maintain, we'll probably have to reduce the yield. Right. We can still maintain that quarterly coupon. To so you, you are well capitalized. Yeah, right. that's the key is front end loading and then having a structure where you have the ability to provide TI and LC dollars without having to go to the lender because you don't want to negotiate with a lender that doesn't understand the dynamic of your assets. Right. Um, and that was through years of making mistakes and doing it the right. right. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, yeah. That's what I keep telling people that unless you take action, you are not going to learn. Once so you can read as much book as you want to, yeah. um, you know, but unless you do it, you are not going to see it. And, and for office, I think it's important to also understand, and this is a mistake we made early on. If the market's doing well and, and rates are, are moving and, and there's a lot of leasing momentum and absorption in a market, that's great. But as a landlord, 
if you have a property that has a lot of little tenants and you think, okay, good, I can push, I can push rates, I can push lease terms, I can get credit, but it's very expensive, right? Yeah. So we've really pivoted towards a model of we have higher concentration of users in our assets, but the credit is much better. Oh, okay. And that really cuts down on that, that cash churn that you right. hear about that why people don't like office. We, we try to take that out of the equation to the extent that we can. Interesting. So what are some of the data points you follow when evaluating a city to invest in? Yeah. So uh, it's, it's very similar to multifamily. You know, the way I think about it is, um, and especially in this, what we're experiencing at COVID. Yes. Where there's, there's, there's an acceleration of all these trends that we've been seeing coming down the pipe and now they're coming really quickly. I love tracking multifamily data because for me, as an office guy, it's all about job growth. It's all about yes. population growth and it's all about wage growth, right? I mean, yeah, that's, what, yeah. that's what drives all office. Those all three migration patterns, right? Yeah. Yeah, all of so those. the way I think of it is, you know, if people are moving to, you know, uh, Kansas City, and, and it's the right demographic of people, well, employers are going to come and yes. try to have a footprint there to take advantage of that human capital, right? Yep. So for us, the way we look at it is million plus cities, MSAs, yep. um, but, but outside the top 10 traditional gateway markets. Right. <laughs> so we're in markets like Nashville, Kansas City, Richmond, Cincinnati, growth secondary markets. Okay, got it. And importantly, it's just like multifamily again, what you see in a lot of these cities is there's no geographical or geophysical barriers, right? There's mm -hmm. no, it's not on the coast. Right. There's no, yeah. there's no mountain ranges. So you get a lot of sprawl. Right. And, and that's where understanding this, the sub market dynamics within the MSAs is really important. Mm -hmm. So we typically, we only go to two sub markets in every MSA. And once we find the ones that we like that were really resilient during the great recession, no new construction, and what we really like to see is not only purchasing at a discount to replacement cost. So if it costs $350 a square foot to build a new building, we're typically 150 uh, square foot on purchase. What I like to see is a discount to replacement rents. So if you're in a market like Kansas city where class a rents are in the high twenties per square foot, and it's going to cost, 35 to $40 a square foot of rent in order to justify new speculative development. I love that dynamic because it protects me as a landlord because no one's going to come in and steal my tenants because they, the numbers just won't work. And so that's where we spend a lot of our time kind of doing the heavy lifting on the data side. And then we like to see local economic drivers in that education, government, healthcare, STEM space, because we think it's resilient and will continue to do well for the next cycle. Got it. So what have you seen uh, about millennial migratory patterns? Yeah, so I am a millennial, barely. I know I look <laughs> old, but I do qualify under the Pew definition, Pew research. Um, so millennials are now the largest working population right. in American history, 75 million people. And there, I think there was really a narrative on Wall Street and, and on the West Coast that, Millennials were never going to have children. They were never going to get married. They were right. going to live in Brooklyn their whole lives. San Francisco, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they're going to be tech bros. But right. the reality is because of 2008, they just delayed their family formation process. Oh, and so okay. now that they're having children and getting married, 
they're making quality of life, cost of living decisions based on where they can access single family homes, where they can access education for their children. And every generation does this. We, we all rebel against our parents and we say, we, oh, we yes. never want to live that life, right? We never are going to do this. <laughs> but for the most part, we end up living a very similar life to our parents. And so you're seeing this, you know, pivot back to the suburbs, um, back to secondary markets, because it was already happening. We saw it coming. Yeah, but with, with COVID, I think it's just it's a catalyst. For yes, a lot of yeah. it's a, it has accelerated for sure. Interesting. So uh, another question I have is, uh, what do you do to evaluate a deal? What are the steps you take when a deal comes to you? Yeah, so we've kind of got our funnel of the MSA, then the submarket. We like that 10 to $20 million purchase price. That's a sweet spot for us. Then if we're buying at a good discount to replacement costs, buying at a good discount to replacement rents, we like a weighted average lease term of over four years. So that means you aggregate all of the leases that are in that building. And if you average them out based on how large those users are, we like to see that in that four to five year range. Um, and then we do a lot of heavy lifting and underwriting on the actual credit of the tenants themselves. And so all of those dynamics that I talked about in the submarket, they all kind of go into this analysis that we have. Um, and for us, we like to be in that, you know, seven to eight cap range where if we put 65 to 68% LTV on it, we're solving for an eight to 10% cash on cash yield. Right. Which makes sense. So, uh, what are some of the gotchas to keep in mind while underwriting office building? <laughs> I think the things that I mentioned before, you can't really be impressed enough, right? So um, one of the mistakes we made early on was even if the building was in a great location, had great tenants, and it hit all the marks for us, um, vintage risk has become a real problem with these buildings. So I think oh, okay. buildings that were built in the 80s and the 90s in our minds, that doesn't seem like that long ago, but they're starting to get really long in the tooth. And you think about the major things you worry about with office, roof, HVAC, HVAC yeah. elevator. Usually those have 25-year life right. uh, lines. Um, so you start looking at deals that were made in the 80s and the 90s, construction, there's a lot of capital expenditures and a lot of deferred maintenance typically mm. and ele elevators will kill you. Oh um, yeah. So we're very sensitive to vintage risk. We like to be somewhere in the two thousands range okay. for new construction. Okay. Um, so those are things that I, that I would really worry about if I were, if I were doing an office deal. So let's say, cause we are seeing low interest rates. So if we have entered a period of low interest rates as the, you know, fad has indicated, where are investors to find yield? Where do investors go? I mean, you know, I was, I had this conversation all day, every day with investors <laughs> and other sponsors or just folks in the financial markets. And, you know, unfortunately there's not a lot of great options out there uh, outside of real estate. Um, you know, I don't see bond deals doing anything corporate no. debt. Corporate debt seems pretty risky. and It's very risky. I think that's the most riskiest asset yeah, right so now. <laughs> some of that high yield junk uh, bond stuff, I think is going to come back to really hurt uh -huh. people. Um, so, you know, there used to be oil and gas. You could do some MLPs. Yes. Energy sector has just been crushed. Right. So, you know, I still think on a risk adjusted basis, real estate is going to be your best bet, especially if we have inflation coming. That's oh, yes. where 
multifamily and office can be really nice hedges to inflation because um, obviously you can push rents right. as needed. I personally think inflation is coming considering how much liquidity the Fed has. How much money we has pumped. Yeah, crazy. But yeah. So uh, can you talk about some one of your deal, like your best deal ever in the office space, you know, where we, you had bought at the right price and sold yeah. and made... Uh, Far and away, the best deal we did was one in Nashville um, a couple of years ago, and it was pure luck. So we bought this building, office deal, off market. Um, it had just gone through a first generation of of, of uh, lease renewals. So tenants were thinking about leaving or they were thinking about extending. The owner was a developer that needed to 1031 the proceeds into a new deal. Oh, so we were able to get under control at a very attractive price. We did some very light value add. We did some light leasing. And frankly, we just really rode the wave of Nashville. We held it for two years and we made north of a 50% IRR. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Yeah, that what? was a good deal. I need more <laughs> deals like that. Right. Yeah, everyone does. <laughs> what was your worst deal? So early on in my career, we did a little bit of development and value add work. And I did a deal that was a urban infill development. Okay. I had everything teed up. I had some great leases. It was a killer location. I got it off market. I worked this thing for over a year. And then during construction, our general contractor made a mistake. And we were relying on a loophole in the, in the, in the code to allow us to do this commercial construction. And when the GC made the mistake, which ultimately is my responsibility as the, as the sponsor, right. um, we lost that loophole that we were uh -oh. relying upon. And it, it just turned into a whole mess. So I had to do a workout, the bank got involved. Luckily I was able to get my investors out even, but it was the worst six months of my life. It was terrible. Right. And, I, and I, don't, I don't do development anymore. Yeah, dealing with city and county and whatnot, that's... <laughs> Local politics. Right. Just, um, so a lesson well learned, but uh, yeah, I don't do those type of deals anymore. Hey, so uh, just looking back, uh, just with the coronavirus impact, how badly the office market has been hit, right? Because personally, I think again, because I'm sitting on, I, I don't know much about office building, but I see most of these offices are unoccupied right now because they are not considered essential business, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what have you seen with your own deals and overall in the market? Yeah, so I'll speak to just kind of macro level. Uh, with the caveat that I obviously am biased, right? I've got a horse in this right. race and I believe office is a, is a resilient asset class and will continue to be a good place to put money moving forward. That being said, um, the Fitch ratings for CNBS delinquencies just came out earlier this week for June. And it was about one and a half percent delinquency for office. Oh, Whereas okay. um, hospitality was around 24%. Oh, yes. It was crazy over 20, yeah. But that being said, it just, it's just too early to say because okay. it's going to take six plus months for some of these deals to work their way through the servicer right. system. And so, you know, who's to say? I can tell you from our perspective, our two and a half million square feet, I don't know how many tenants that is. I should probably know that. It's a lot. We had about 92, 93% rent payment uh, for April, May, June. July, we're still getting the numbers in, but we've That's been- That's pretty good though. 
we've been yeah. pretty well protected. Um, yeah. I, you know, the longer COVID goes on, honestly, it's just a matter of where you are on the spectrum. So you've got, right. you've got hospitality and retail here. You've got office in the middle. Then you've got multifamily. Yes. And then you have industrial data center self-storage, right. which, you know, are going to be largely unaffected unless this really goes on for a long time. Right, so, right. Um, I think what you see is offices that are in major coastal metros with, with Democrat, Democratic governments and have tech user bases, I think they're going to yeah. struggle. I mean, right. when WeWork is the largest tenant in Manhattan and WeWork goes BK, which I think they will. Yeah, um, yeah, they, they will. And they, they were struggling before this. So I was uh, reading, and I, this is not my quote, but even Warren Buffett or someone else said that, Businesses which were struggling or which were barely staying afloat before COVID, they're not going to survive. And WeWork is one of them. They all are yeah, struggling. <laughs> just like we were talking about in terms of demographic movements, the same thing is, just like you said, the same thing is true for these businesses. If, if you were struggling before, COVID only makes it worse. Right? Yeah, so yeah. it just accelerates what's you're, going you're to happen. Si you are really sick now, right? But, I, <laughs> but to, your, to your question, Office as an asset class is a function of density. And what we saw leading up to COVID was this trend line towards massive density, right? The WeWork model where you had 75 square feet per oh, employee yes. and really expensive build outs yeah. and really expensive TI packages. I think the pendulum is going to swing to the other way where people are going to want more traditional office layouts with a door, uh, more like 250 square feet per employee. Suburban office is really well positioned to take on that kind of density and they can park that kind of density. I think what you'll see is more of a hub and spoke model where, you know, the mothership will be in New York or San Francisco, but mm -hmm. there'll be offices in Denver and Nashville right. and Austin and some of these other secondary markets. Um, just like 08, people are going to reevaluate how much money they were spending on office and whether or not it was necessary yes. to obtain right. and, and retain all that talent. And so I think they'll be looking for more cost effective options. Got it. So this leads me to my next question. Which office market do you think will be hardest hit by COVID? New York. New York, of course. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, New York's got a real issue where, and I'm from New York. It is oh, yeah. the great, greatest, greatest density, everything. <laughs> greatest city in the world. Right. Greatest city in the world. But you've got a real problem where there's going to be a death spiral mm. of your tax base leaving, which means that you've got to raise taxes. Oh, yes. And you've got to cut services, and which means more affluent people are going to leave. And so places like New York and San Francisco, I think it's just gonna, I right. mean, it was, it was really bad before. Right, it was unaffordable. <laughs> but the, the only option these places have is to raise taxes to make up right. for these uh, budget inefficiencies. And they've still got long-term issues with pension plans and etc. Yeah, so oh yeah, huge California struggling. You know, yeah. when you hear Barry Sternlich, who runs Starwood, say that out of 300 million square feet that that guy runs, he only has one building in New York City. Wow. Wow. Pre-COVID. <laughs> Pre-COVID because yeah. he didn't like he didn't like the dynamics. Right. So right. I just New York and and I think a misconception misconception is that this is kind of a zero sum game. Like if, if people leave New York and they come to Nashville, it's good for Nashville and bad for New York. It, it's, it's more dynamic and fluid than that, right? So as people leave the city, it allows younger folks 
who you know want to go to New York, it'll be more affordable for them, and the cycle yes, will continue. That, that's true. In that's the next true. in the next five or ten years, I think these major coastal cities are really going to struggle. Yeah, I, I I agree. So, which cities are you personally looking at right now? Yeah, we continue to be very bullish on Kansas City. Okay, we see Chicago imploding. Oh, really? Uh, I thought Chicago yeah. will struggle. Oh. Chicago will struggle. They have one of the worst uh, budget situations. Yeah, in their tax and, and they have the highest outbound migration. Yeah. Illinois, so, California, New Jersey, and now New York. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've, you've seen the U-Haul data just like I have. Exactly. Uh, and it's one of those things when you tell rich people as a politician, hey, my plan is to tax rich people more, you realize that they're mobile and that they will yeah. leave. And so... You know, I think Kansas City is going to be direct beneficiary of that, of oh, that Chicago okay. implosion. And I actually like Omaha. We continue to look at deals in Cincinnati. Um, mm-hmm. the, the markets that we are going into, you know, they change quarterly based on the right. data that we're seeing. But, yeah, I mean, I would love to do more deals in Nashville, but it's just too expensive. Right. So yeah, I, yeah. I can't it, see it, us doing it, it. Yeah, it grew like crazy in the last five, six years. Yeah. So awesome. This was great. Let's take a quick break. And after the break, we'll continue with fire round. Let's do it. You're listening to the Wealth Matters Podcast. The Wealth Matters Podcast. For more info about what we do, check us out at wealthmatters.com. It's wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H, matters, M-A-T-R-S.com. Welcome back to Wealth Matters Podcast. I have with me Brian Adams and we are continuing to discuss about office space or commercial office building. Uh, Brian, I ask these five questions to all of my guests uh, every week. Uh, and so this is a fire round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Would you be changing any business or investment strategy after coronavirus? Yes. So we will obviously underwrite the credit of the tenants with a little bit more scrutiny and you know clearly if you have exposure as a business to hospitality travel or leisure um we're gonna expect you know more there in terms of credit so that was something that pre-covid we didn't think as much about you know if you're well capitalized and you had a good credit rating we assumed that you were in good shape but now industry-specific exposure becomes part of our analysis. So that's certainly something we're thinking about. Perfect. Favorite real estate or finance book? Yeah. So even though I hated law school, one of the biggest epiphanies I had was as a first-year student, Real Property 101, um, the concept that our entire credit system is based on the ability to borrow money against real estate it just, I didn't appreciate wow. that when I was young and I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to travel extensively. And I don't think people, you probably have some more perspective on this, but I'm not sure people in the U S realize that the ability to, to own real estate as a private individual is not true across the world. Oftentimes no. you have leaseholds, which I just, you know, fundamentally conceptually don't understand how that would work. Um, <laughs> so that book, you know, changed my whole life about just how the market functions. And then you can see what, in, in a way, what happened when you forced too many people to own. Yes. <laughs> but 
you know, it still is the basis for how we, how we conduct the entire economy. Right. Any tool or website you recommend or you personally use every day or for your business? For news? Yeah, for, um, for anything maybe to find deals or, you know, you can't live without. Yeah. So I've become a huge LinkedIn junkie. Yeah. Um, yeah I just think what... it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's, um, it might be how we connected. I don't remember. Yes, yeah, but... this is how, and my earlier guest as well mentioned the same thing. It's, yeah, I, you I know, love LinkedIn now. I was on it before, but with, with COVID and the quarantine, I just really nerded out on it and started listening to podcasts and reading things and books and best practices. And for me, it's an incredible way to meet investors and, you know, really connect with them and show them my thought process through my postings and provide them content. Right. And it's just expanded my network tremendously. So now I'm totally addicted. I could not live without LinkedIn. Yeah, I love LinkedIn. Yeah, it's, it's great. And just being able to meet people like you and yes. share thoughts and ideas and best practices. It's a really beautiful community. And seeing what's happening with these other social media platforms, right. I really appreciate LinkedIn just being more of a professional place where uh -huh. people are trying to build their businesses. Yeah. That's a great point. Any advice for beginner investors? <laughs> um, real estate is a very capital intensive business. And if yes. you don't feel comfortable pitching and being told no, it's not the business for you. Got it. No, that's a great advice actually. You know, when I meet an <laughs> entrepreneur or I talk to somebody who wants to be in the business and I ask, okay, well, you know, how are you going to go out there and raise and what's your thought process on marketing and business development and they say oh well i'm gonna hire a salesperson how are you <laughs> wrong if you're not the chief salesperson you will fail nice. there's not somebody in your organization focused on on the capital side of the business 24 7 you will fail right it is, it is just very important obviously and i'm not sure i think a lot of times people get excited and they say oh, i got this great idea and this great team but unless you have capital to close that deal that's just an idea right. and an idea is not a business. Nope. How do you give back? Yeah. So we have a corporate sponsorship with a local um, food bank, um, kind of like second harvest only it's only in Nashville. Okay. And so uh, right now they're, they're not open to volunteers with COVID, but we do food drives or just uh, donate money there. So we're focused on food security and um, trying to eliminate food deserts in Nashville. It's in our own backyard. That's awesome. How can my listeners reach out to you, Brian? Yeah, like I said, I'm very active on LinkedIn, so you can look me up. If you message me, um, you know, I'm happy to connect. I'll try to tell you, you know, best practices. Maybe I'll try to help you raise capital. I can probably tell you what not to do because I screwed up a lot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, LinkedIn, and then you can check us out on the website, excelsiorgp.com. And, um, you know, please reach out and let me know how I can help. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, I'll thank you for having me. It was really fun. Yeah, same here. Have a nice weekend. Okay, take care. You too. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Wealth Matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing!